morning. We're continuing our study in, in Genesis, uh, the story of Abraham. Um, but in this account, in chapter 19, we're actually going to leave Abraham behind and we, we look at Lot and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a famous account for sure, uh, an account that brings all sorts of feelings and thoughts as we approach it. Um, last week, we began by looking at Abraham interceding on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we looked at how God was both just and merciful. And once again, we're going to see those same themes unfold for us here in Genesis 19. The justice of God and the mercy of God. As we look at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. In Hebrew, in, in, in narratives, just by way, you might not realize this, but now you'll hopefully know this as you go through your Bible, as you read the Old Testament narratives. Um, Hebrew has a way of drawing our attention to particular accounts and to say this thing is important. And one of the ways it does that is by, is by slowing down and giving more detail. So if you've ever read through, say, the, the construction of the tabernacle in the book of Exodus, you're thinking, wow, that's a lot of time to spend talking about the construction. Well, the reason is not that you might remember every detail about the construction of the, the tabernacle, but in fact you would slow down and recognize the significance and importance of the tabernacle. So it is here in the book, in the book of Genesis, in the account of Abraham. This is the lengthiest account in the story of Abraham, in the narrative of, of, the, of Abraham in particular. It's the lengthiest portion. That means there's weight to it. There's significance to it. And so as we come to this, I think we ought to pay attention. As difficult as this text is, it's important for us. It's necessary. Now, I need to give a little bit of warning. Not too much, though, but a little bit of warning. The topics at hand are heavy. They have gravity. They're grave, as, as uh, God the Lord said to Abraham. The sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, Gomorrah are grave. They're weighty significant. Um, they deal with issues relating to sexuality and the gross sin therein. And I will deal with them carefully just as scripture itself does but you ought to know up front that I'm not shying away from the text. After all God revealed this for our good. So with that let's turn to Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19. We're going to read the whole thing all of it. It's a lot of a lot of ugly here. This is the word of the Lord. You can follow along in your bulletins or your Bibles in Genesis chapter 19. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made a feast and baked unleavened bread. And they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, of the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, 
Where are the men who you came to who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who I have, have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and you do them with them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he became the judge. Now we'll deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they were themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his son-in-laws, to his son-in-law, who were to marry his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought him out, one out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to. It's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to them, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the, the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar, which means little. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went up early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like a smoke of a furnace. So it was that, so it was that when God destroyed the cities of valley, of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the city in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of, out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come in to us after the manner of all the earth. Come. Let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring for our father. 
So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him. And then we may preserve the offspring from our father. So they made the father drink wine that night and also. Also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of the lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son called his, and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Benami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, with humility, we come to your word this morning, recognizing the weightiness of it, the challenges in it. As we see a vision of your glory, your holiness, your justice, and your mercy. Lord, be merciful to us. Reveal to us the wonders of your holiness and the wonders of your love. The Lord be with me. A man of unclean lips who sits and stands in the midst of the people of unclean lips. Have mercy on me as I bring your word to your people. May we know the wonders of your grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As a child, I was told that if you put a frog in a pot of boiling water, it would jump out. That if you put a frog in water and slowly heated that water, the, this frog would just warm up, would just swim around and wouldn't try to jump out until it was too late. And the water was boiling and the frog would die. Now, I don't think the science of that's accurate. I, I don't think, I don't know. You can go look that up on Google or something. But, but we were told that, right, as kids? It was meant to be a metaphor, but I do think the metaphor is accurate. I think the metaphor still holds weight. It's still useful. Especially as we consider what it means for us to live in a world that in many ways is increasingly anti-God. Especially as we consider what it means for us to see and live in a world where we feel that tension of cultural decline and we look out and we cry out for for justice and we cry out for God's God's power to, to, to bring justice and mercy to bear on this world. We we often we look at it and we, we kind of recognize that things aren't right. But I would argue, and I could be wrong, that we often miss the more subtle ways in which we get comfortable in the water. You see, occasionally the temperature rises suddenly on us. It ticks up a degree or two, and we feel a certain shock. And we look around and we say, this is wrong. We look at the culture and we're aghast at its complete disregard for what is good and for what is right, calling evil good and good evil. And so, rightly so, we stand up against the culture. We stand and we say, this is wrong. We look at issues maybe like abortion, issues surrounding gender and sexuality, issues surrounding race and injustice. Yet all the while, 
We allow other sin and other cultural norms to take a foothold in our hearts and lives, oblivious to their destructive power. The account of Sodom and Gomorrah stands as a warning for us to flee from sin, all of it. To be vigilant in our lives, as the New Testament writers put it, we read some of these passages earlier, to be sober-minded, watchful, living lives of godliness as we wait for the day of the Lord. And the problem is we get used to it. We get comfortable in the world in which we live. We, we, we like it. There's so many aspects of it that are, that are comfortable for us. And not only that, but the day of the Lord is, is a concept, I would say, more than something tangible that we think will happen. Right? We get it theologically, but it feels distant. It feels far off from us. The account of Sodom and Gomorrah challenges that. And it suggests that the day is closer than we think. It's meant to shake us and call us to flee. This is what the angels do. They go to Lot. They say, flee. They call us to flee from sin and to flee to Christ. There's no other refuge that we can find. None. The day of the Lord is at hand. It's not far off. Don't look back. Run. Flee sin. Flee to Christ. There is no other refuge when that day comes. It's a hard message. I recognize that. As I prepared for this message, um, I felt a certain weight, a certain certain. Sadness in my own heart for the ways in which I don't flee. Certain sense of hypocrisy that I come here calling you all to flee, and yet I still find comfort in the world that I live in. But we have to listen to God's words. Tend to. There are three parts that I want to look at today. The first is the corrupting power of sin. Second is God's mercy and grace. We want to look at that, and we'll look at it in some detail, and then, of course, land on it. But then, thirdly, I want us to look at the day of the Lord. And as we as we unpack the text, I just as a note, I'm going to be jumping around the account. I'm going to sort of organize it not not linearly, but sort of topically. So we're going to look at throughout the text the corrupting power of sin, then throughout the text God's grace, and then throughout the text God's judgment. If that makes sense. So first, the corrupting power of sin. In Sodom and Gomorrah, we see sin in its full flower. I think I said that last week. And as I realized, I used that illustration, that uh, metaphor. We think of flowers as very beautiful things. So um, I guess I would say simply, uh, think of the ugliest flower you can come up with in your mind. <laughs> and, and if that's too hard for you, what I mean is this, that, that Sodom and Gomorrah is the full expression of sin itself without restraint. And I said this last week as well, it's important to note, you know, all sin is rebellion against God. All sin deserves the wrath and curse of God. There's no sin that is not too small to deserve God's wrath. There is no such thing as a peccadillo. On the other hand, not all sin is equally as heinous. And so, 
Sodom and Gomorrah is a picture of the heinousness of sin, the worst of it, the greatest expression of it. That's why the Lord says to Abraham in chapter 18, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. So we have to ask, why, why was it so grave? Why so great? Why so weighty? What was so ugly about it? Well, we get a picture of it here uh, in chapter 19. And the first thing that we note when we come to the text is that Lot is sitting at the gate. Right. That, that's, you know, like, I, I, I don't know what we think about gates. We think about gates as sort of entry points for outsiders. But the gate had quite a bit of significance in the ancient Near East world. Lot was there at the place of importance in the civil life of the city of Sodom. It was the place where the elders met to make judgments and decisions. It was also the area or place where commerce happened. You know, I was uh, if you go to Boston and you take the Freedom Trail, uh, one portion of the Freedom Trail, there's the State House, and right next to it is Faneuil Hall, and right next to that is Quincy Market. You notice they're all right there, wrapped up together. And if you go back to, I guess, the 1600s or 1700s, that would have been the place where everything insignificant in the life of the city happened, right there. And that's what the gate was here. Nay, there he was at the gate. And it's interesting that that he's there at the gate. What is that all about? Well, I think part of it is he is simply saying, uh, the text is simply telling us that he was enmeshed in the life of the city. He was there in the mix of it. So what was the life of this city? What was it like? Well, we get a picture of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah quite quite strong here. Um, so just keep in mind Lot and him sitting at the gate. He meets these angels. He brings them into uh, his home after some debate. And while they're there in the home, they eat together. And you can sense from Lot his sense of, we need to get, we need to get uh, you in and out as quickly as possible. I want to protect you and get you home and get you on your way wherever you're going. Um, but in the midst of that, all the men of the city come to Lot's house. Lot, this prominent man who was sitting at the gate with the elders, they come to his house because they know that they met these men and they want to have their way with them. The text says, young and old, all the people to the last man. I don't know how big the city was. But that's a scary prospect. The text says that they get to the house and they say, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we might know them. Now, some of you might just read that text and say, Oh, they just want to get to know them. They just want to be part of the party. Uh, many of you won't know this, but it's important to note that this is delicate language that the Bible uses, the word to know. It's a very significant word in the Hebrew, but it can have different connotations. And one of those connotations is that it means or is a euphemism for sexual relations. Text here is being delicate. But get, make no mistake, 
And, and we know this is the case because of Lot's response, right? When Lot says to them in response, it says, I beg you. And then he tries to identify himself with them that he might win them over. He says, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Let me bring them out to you. You can do to them as you please. We'll get to Lot and his sin in a minute, all right? So just, just hold on for him. But for right now, I just want us to know what was going on here. We, we ought not to shy away from this. They wanted to do something as wicked as you can imagine. I think it's hard for us to read a text like this uh, out of the Bible because our mind says, no, no, that's not what really happened, was it? That wasn't what really was going on. It, it can't be. But this was the outcry that went up against the city. This kind of wickedness and injustice had been done over and over again throughout the life of the city. It had become such a stench in the nostrils of the Lord that he was going to come down and he was going to destroy the city on account. Their sin was grave. What did it include? Yes, it included homosexuality. Oftentimes we fixed it on that thing, but that, that was part of it. It included violence. It included malice. It included greed. And these are just really to name a few. When the prophets and Jesus and the apostles, when they talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, when they use Sodom and Gomorrah as an illustration of the sin of their own generation and their own people, they describe the sin of idolatry. And the sin of injustice and the inhospitable nature of these people. They, they describe the sin of sensuality and the lust of defiling passions and the despising of authority and haughtiness and a whole host of other sins. I think there are a couple pitfalls when we look at the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. One pitfall is to only see the, the, the sin of homosexuality. Right? To, to zero in on that, that is the sin. And to not realize that there's a multitude of sins for which Sodom and Gomorrah come under judgment. And I think the reason that it's a pitfall, one of the, the reasons that it, it can be a problem if that's how we view it, if, if we view it just through that lens, just through that lens, and I'll come to that in a second, then what can happen is that we can look past in our day all manners of sin and all manners of evil and stand only against the one in which we are not tempted by. Mm. Right? Wow. Like homosexuality, transgenderism. Those are sin, and we, we need to address those. But sometimes we become, so, we become so laser focused on those that we ignore what's going on in here. And so when we're confronted with someone who says, maybe they say they're gay or they say they're transgender or even a Christian who says they struggle with same-sex attraction, we can fail to have compassion. But there's a second pitfall here, and we have to be really clear on this. There's a second pitfall. We can also minimize sexual sin. We can say, it's not that big a deal. In fact, Scripture says it's a mark 
of our rebellion against God. We'll look at Romans chapter 1 in just a minute. And the reason that this is a pitfall, when we, say, when we try to minimize or dismiss this kind of sexual sin, and we can say homosexuality, but we can say all sorts of things too, right? Addiction to pornography, man. We can minimize that. Right? But when we do this, when we minimize it, or we even sanctify it, Sometimes we sanctify, we say things like, well, that's just who that person is. They can't change, or even God made them that way. What happens is that we are not loving and showing compassion by confirming somebody in their sin. We give them no hope of salvation, no hope of change. Two pitfalls. Maximize, minimize, Sin of homosexuality is clearly laid out in Scripture as sin, and it's certainly a part of the simple pattern in Sodom and Gomorrah. But the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah were manifold. And all of it deserved God's wrath. And we, as believers, are called to flee from all of it and to encourage others to flee with us. Romans 1.18, I think is the most significant passage in sort of unfolding the picture of rebellion against God that we have in Scripture. And I think it's helpful for us to read this because it, it, it expresses what happens sort of in Sodom and Gomorrah. Chapter 1, verse 18 of Romans says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. A little further down, Paul says, Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those who are contrary to nature, for those which are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now we often stop here as Christians and say, look, there's the cultural sin that we have before us in our world. That's it. And I would simply say this, that is a telltale of rebellion against God. We see it here clearly in Scripture. But let's continue on in Romans 1. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what they ought not, what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness. Uh, let me ask, how many of you go around fighting for the justice of covetousness? Malice, envy, murder, strife, Deceit, maliciousness. How about this one? How many of us are fighting for this? They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty. Another word for that is prideful, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to their parents. <laughs> Foolish. 
faithless, heartless, ruthless. Okay, so who of us does this not fit? Who of us stands here clean as a whistle? Though they knew no God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Uh, you know, I'm concerned about the culture, and we need to we need to stand up for what is right and good to fight for justice. But I'll be honest, I'm more concerned for the hearts of all of y'all and my own heart who sit here. And the way in which the evil one, the world, the culture, sin, the flesh, the devil, wraps itself around us and establishes a foothold in our hearts. In general, we're better at identifying cultural sin than the sin in our own lives. So it was with Lot and his family. So let's look at Lot and his family. I spent a lot of time there, but Lot and his family, we'll just briefly run through them. Um, we already talked about Lot a little bit. But did you know this in first in Second Peter chapter two, verse seven, the apostle Peter says that Lot is a righteous man. Now, when you listen to me read the text, was your first first thought, "Oh, Lot is a righteous man"? That probably was not your first thought as you went through the text. In fact. Peter goes on in verse 8 and he says this. He makes a parenthetical statement elaborating on the righteousness of Lot. And he says, for as that righteous man lived among them that day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Was he tormenting his soul? That's what Peter says. Is Peter looking at the same Lot that we are? Let me say, I think so. I think Lot is a very complex Figure. He's a very complex figure. First of all, he met the angels and urged them to come to his house. Right? He sat in the in in, in the, the, the the gates of the city, but when those men came, he recognized them right away as important persons, as not a part of the city, and he was concerned for them, and so he provides hospitality to them. He tries to protect them. Though he uses another sin to do that, we'll talk about it in a minute. But he says, I beg you, my brothers. Do not act so wickedly. He was concerned about the wickedness of Sodom. And, and he wanted to preserve his family, including his sons-in-law. He goes out into the city the next morning and says to his brother-in-laws, Come, we've got to get away. We've got to run. They don't listen. But Lot, in, in, in some ways, was a righteous man. He had a concern. But Lot was also a sinner, corrupted by the world within which he lived. He was at the center of life in Sodom. He sat at the gates. He was involved in the commerce. He was somebody who was in the thick of it, enmeshed in it. And so here's the question. How could he not be influenced by it? And I already hear the argument. So, Robert, are you saying we just pull out of culture, we pull out of society, we disengage? Aren't we to be salt and light engaged in culture and society? And I would say, yes, we ought to live in this world. Joseph, mm -hmm. he was one of the highest in the land of Egypt. Daniel was deeply engaged in the civic affairs of Babylon. 
But here's the thing. We ought also to be aware of how much we are being shaped by the world within which we live. And sometimes I think we don't see it. Remember, Lot chose the land based on its wealth, right? He moved into Sodom, presumably to be at the center of commerce to increase his wealth. He was not driven by desire to transform the culture. He was driven by his greed. What he wanted. I think we need to check our motivations. And like Daniel, count the cost. Who willingly went to the lion's den to be gobbled up by lions rather than not pray to his Lord. Culture is like a, it's like a, a tide rolling in. Uh, up in Maine, we have pretty big tides. I think if you go to the Bay of Fundy, you have massive tides, right? Um, it's like a tide rolling in. It covers everything. And sometimes you might even be like floating in the tide and you think you're fine, but you're being dragged out to sea or you're being pulled down into the, the mouth of the river. You are being swept away by the tide. The New Testament writers therefore say, live as pilgrims, be sober-minded, live in the light of day, be watchful and vigilant. The, 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 the evil one prowls around like a roaring lion to devour us. Are we aware? Are we eyes wide open? Not just for the big cultural sins out there, but for the sin that we so easily entangle ourselves with. We can see in Lot the influence of that culture, that sexually perverse culture within which he lived, when he tried to protect his guests, right? What did he do? He offered his daughters as a substitute. Why didn't he offer himself? Hospitality was an important deal, wasn't it? Is it more important than the lives of his own children? Particularly his daughters, vulnerable as they were in that society? And that, So we have to ask the question, what was the view of women in that day? What views of women just kind of washed over Lot that he was willing to give up his daughters? For whatever reason, Lot did not view this as a big deal. It was the lesser of two evils, so to speak. I don't know what his moral calculus was, but I do know that it was warped by the world within which he lived. I think it can be very difficult for us to make moral decisions, moral judgments, because we're so blinded by what the world judges as good and right. We are just, we don't even know what we don't know sometimes. And the question is, how do we inoculate ourselves against that? How do we get judgment? How do we have our eyes open? How do we stay vigilant? How do we be watchful? How do we not be washed away? Well, there's a very clear antidote to this. We need to fill our hearts and minds with the things of God. To let that word wash over us day in and day out. To let that culture be our culture. To be swept up with God and His law rather than to be swept away by the current of this world. Which is it for you? 
Not only this, but Lot lingered in the city. When it came time to flee, Lot had trouble letting go. How many of us is that the case where we know something is sin, we know we're doing something wrong, and we're just like, but I don't want to let it go. I don't want to let go. Praise God, His mercy is grabbing us and ripping us away from our idols. Lot wanted to maintain his way of life. So he said, don't send me to the hills, to the caves. Send me to this little city. I'll go to the little city. You know, it's like, it's like saying, well, Lord, you know, I won't do all those big things over there, but I might just keep this little city of my own. This little place where I can still kind of rebel a little bit. Of course, he gets to Zoar, and of course, it starts to devour him, and he escapes it. But it's interesting that the Lord was merciful, that God allowed and permitted him to come to his own conclusions. Sometimes that's the way of the Lord. But of course, this isn't just Lot that we see all this terrible sin. And I'm realizing I'm way over time. Take your time, man. Take your time. Yeah. Take your time. This is a hard sermon because I realized how much it pressed it on my own heart. It's not just Lot, right? His sons-in-law scoffed at him. They were just part and parcel with Sodom. His wife, she couldn't let go. Don't turn back. I'm turning back. And his daughters. How warped were his daughters? How much had the, the world in which they had grown up in, the world in which they had lived, shifted the way they thought about their own sexuality? That enabled them to do something. Like sleep with their father. We're so influenced by the world around us that we don't even see it. But here's the good news. There's grace and there's mercy. There's grace and there's mercy. The very fact that the angels were there and present, that they came to Sodom and Gomorrah because Abraham had interceded for that city. He had interceded on behalf of Lot and on behalf of any righteous person that was there. Those angels came down and they visited. And they came to Lot. And they delivered Lot. Even when Lot was lingering, even when he didn't want to let go, they tore them away. They took him by the hands and said, go, get out. And even when the city rose up against them, they protected and kept Lot and his family. They blinded the men. We have a faithful God who remembers His covenant promises. Verse 29, this is at the end of the destruction. It says, So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. God is good. God is faithful. God is gracious. Friends, as I look at my own sin and all the influences of the world, all the idols that remain, all the things that I don't see, I can get overwhelmed. It can be an overwhelming place to live. But God is gracious 
and he meets us. He comes down to us and we can cry out to him just as the psalmist in Psalm 19 cried out as he reflected on God and his word and he said, who can discern God's errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The Lord Jesus Christ came down into Sodom and Gomorrah. He came down to a world that, re that was in rebellion against him, and he offered up himself. He didn't take us and say to Satan, well, take these over here like Lot took his daughters and deal with those. He said, here I am, take me, that we might be saved, that we might be redeemed. we look at the world around us and we see it going in the direction of, you know, there was a book written back in the, I think the late 90s um, it was a political book called Slouching to Gomorrah, maybe some of you have read it, but um, it was a great illustration, like as we see this world slouching to Gomorrah, as we see it going that direction, the question that we have to ask ourselves is where is the Lord in the midst of this? Well, he's, he's building up his church. His kingdom is advancing and he is providing a refuge. And I, my question is for us, are we creating a place that looks just like the world here at CCPC? Are we a refuge for the world? A place where people can come and see the rock and hide themselves away from the world and it's, it's all of its evil that it has turned against the Lord. Is this a place where people can come and be loved? to know compassion, to find grace and mercy? Are we going out into the world and calling out to people, listen, flee! Turn to Christ and flee! And find hope. Well, here's the thing. We won't pray this, nor be vigilant, nor cry out to our neighbor to flee sin, or to flee to Christ, unless we believe that the Lord indeed is coming. Just as He destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, He will bring about his day of vengeance. It's coming. As Abraham watched the smoke rise like a furnace, he couldn't help but wonder, who is a God like this? He overthrew the cities of the plain. It was such a, an event that that Lot and his daughters felt like they were the last people in the whole earth. It's part of why they sinned. Throughout Scripture, Sodom and Gomorrah are, are pictured for us as God's judgment. I want to read one passage in Luke chapter 10. Very short. Very short, it says, but, wherever, but whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. 
For if the mighty works done in you have been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Goes on, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the powers of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is the disciples going out and, and preaching. And Jesus is saying, if they reject you, know that they reject me and that judgment is surely coming. We have a job to go out to all the world proclaiming the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. To repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. That the Lord is coming to judge the heavens and the earth. That things are not as, always as they will be, as Peter says. But the day to a day, the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years as is a day to the Lord. That He is coming to judge again. So, what does that mean for us? It means repentance. It means humility. It means faith. It means being watchful, being ready. It means eyes open. It means running to Jesus and knowing that our salvation is secure in Him and crying out to the world, flee to Christ. Let's pray.